looking at the call or the invitation of Christ. When we get there, it'll be a very familiar passage. Uh, let's go ahead and begin uh, right there. And uh, yeah, let's look at from verses 28 through 30. Make sure I have my notes right. Anybody want to read that? Have you ever heard that verse before? Okay. Um, when you get to verse 29, and I'm not, we'll come back to verse 28. Take my yoke upon you, and then for my yoke is easy, my burden light. Doesn't that make you want to sing a hymn? It's an old hymn we sing off over and over and over again. So it's a very familiar verse. Uh, I doubt you uh, who have been saved for any length of time have not heard uh, this verse. Uh, and again, even though it's familiar tonight and again next week at least, we're going to examine this verse, I think, very, very, very deeply. And uh, I think a lot of times, and this verse is certainly no exception to this, a lot of times we miss a lot of what the Bible is saying because we look at it in a superficial way. There's really a whole lot here in these couple of verses. And again, wonderful verses. Uh, we would consider, it a, a, at least from the first glance, a very simple uh, passage. But tonight we're going to find out how we can benefit from taking, I think, a deeper look of what this verse uh, is saying as we take it apart a, a bit uh, by bit. Now, again, uh, most of us would say, well, we understand this meaning, and so what's the point in looking at it? Well, I think it's going to help us tonight uh, to see exactly uh, what we consider a easy, well-known verse, how deep this uh, verse uh, really is when we consider the significance of the words that Jesus uses here uh, in this verse. Now, remember, just because it's familiar, and this is familiar to us, that doesn't mean we really fully understand the significance of a verse just like this. And again, because we're familiar with it, we assume that we do. Now, also understand, and it's true for any scripture, it's one thing to know the scripture, what it says, it's quite another to enter into the sense of that verse. To enter into the sense of that verse. Sister Cheryl Wood, Matthew 11 tonight, beginning of verse 28 through 30. But anyway, uh, very familiar verse. And we're living, I'm going to try to be nice here. But how many would agree we're living in a dumbed down society? Isn't that true? Uh, I hate to say this, but a lot of people in our culture are downright lazy. I mean, if you don't believe me, try to go to a restaurant and see if they got any help. Uh, I was calling Home Depot in Cleveland today uh, for some material for a state office. And uh, finally, when the one guy was able to answer the phone, he said, I'm the only one in our department today. I mean, everybody... Nobody wants to work. Now, that's not our point tonight, but the problem is we live in a society with mental slackness. We don't want to think on our own. Uh, we don't want to put in the effort, uh, whatever it might be. And uh, normally when people do get involved in a task of something, they don't care how well they do it, they just want what? Get it done, right? Just get it done. Now, I'm afraid that that attitude has somewhat affected the pulpits in America today. No real depth, just easy, peasy, superficial, whatever. 
And the same is true for us sometime when we study the Word. Now, it's interesting. If you don't know it by now, you need to know this. Studying God's Word is not easy. In Isaiah's time, we don't have this in our notes tonight, but some of the people of Isaiah's day were upset with him. And he had preached the fact they didn't know God's Word. And and they said, do you think we're babies? And they made a comment, sort of in sarcasm, but they were right. It's line upon line, precept on precept, here a little and there a little. And their point was, we can't believe because of who we are, you're treating us that way. But the fact of the matter, studying God's word is hard work. You hear me often, and I, I must give credit to one of my former pastors. Uh, I got this from him because he kept telling me about it and us about it when he was here. Uh, that whenever we're studying God's word, when we're being we're teaching it, we're reading it for ourselves, we need to pay attention to the context. Pay attention to the context. And I remember my first pastor. Uh, he sort of did it in a sort of a sarcastic way, and he would say, for example, uh, the Bible says that Judas went out and hung themselves. So does that mean we're to do the same thing? No, it's, we realize that's as plain as it can be. But the fact of the matter, the fact of the matter, we have to understand the context, what's going on, who was saying it, who they're writing to, and that's all the Word of God, don't miss that. But also, when you're studying God's Word, One clause relates to the other. How are they linked together? One builds upon the other. And a lot of times, let's be honest, we mutilate Scripture. And this is one of those passages. I've told this story before. And I know he won't mind me telling because he told me the story on himself. And uh, I have a pastor friend of mine. He's retired now. He's retired. And uh, when he went to Bible college, he'd been preaching for about three or four years. And uh, he went to Bible college. And when he got there, they asked him some questions. And one question they asked him was, how many sermons have you preached? So he said he got his mental calculator hooked up. And he thought, well, I preached twice on Sunday, usually Wednesday I've been doing it for this many years. So I think he said I, he put down about 250 sermons. He'd been to Bible college about six months, and he went back to the dean's office, and he said, I need to make a correction. I, I missed, he wasn't really lying. Uh, he said, but I misstated something. When you asked me how many sermons I preached, I told you 250-some, but the truth of the matter is I preached the same sermon 250 times. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is he, he admitted he hadn't done much studying and almost, he may have used different words, but it's all about the same thing. So again, we come to this verse and we love his, the invitation Christ makes. Who's the invite? Everyone. He wants us come. And sadly, we only quote part of the verse, and it may be because we're most familiar with that part, but one of the reasons is, while part of this verse is appealing, some of it is not so easy to measure up to. It's hard to swallow. And what happens is, when we don't connect the clauses, when we don't understand the context, and the call is clear, that call becomes twisted, and 
it, it really becomes sort of a promiscuous invitation because we ignore the qualifying terms that Jesus used if we're going to find that rest. Let's be honest. And how many want to find that rest? I do. We do. We want. There's nothing wrong with that. And so when we think about even that when we quote the first part of that verse, rarely if ever have we asked what is involved in coming to Christ. What is really involved in coming to Christ? And if we don't ask that question, we're, all, we're assuming we already know the answer. We're not going to turn there tonight, uh, but a verse came in my mind. Uh, John chapter 2. At the end of that chapter, uh, there was a multitude began to follow Christ. Now, you might want to make a note of it, but John chapter 2 is right before John 3. And John 3 is where Jesus talks about being born again. But in the end of chapter 3, that multitude was following. And John made a note that Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew their heart. They had come. They said they wanted to follow. But what was the truth of the matter? They really didn't. They didn't want to fulfill what's required to come to Jesus. On the outside, it looked like they did. So we see how important this is. Now also understand, uh, first of all, uh, help me out here tonight. Who is Jesus? Son of God, okay. Uh, he... I don't know how to put this, but I just, he holds and fulfills several different offices. You know what they are. Well, let me ask you this, okay? Let me ask in a way this to help you understand because I know where I'm going. You don't know where I'm going. And sometimes I don't know where I'm going, all right? So is he a prophet? Yes. Is he a king? Yes. Is he a priest? Yes. Is he our savior? Yes. Is he a judge? Yes. So anytime we're studying the scriptures, especially about Christ, in what particular, I don't know how to put this, mode is he in whenever he makes a statement like this? Is he the prophet, the priest, the king, creator, the judge? No. What is that office? So we have to be careful not to ignore that. And if it becomes clear what office he's... Now, again, it doesn't like he wears a different hat, you know, but he's all of those things. But different times, he's, 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 he portrays those different offices that he is. And so we, we can't ignore that, and we cannot substitute another for one. Now, again, whether you... Whether we realize it on the initial reading, this is... A conditional promise. If you're going to find rest, we're going to do what? Come to Him. We've got to come to Him. And the problem is, we tend to take what is a conditional promise and try to make it an unconditional promise. Just come. Now, we do need to do that. But we also have to understand, not only did he say come unto him, but we're going to talk about what that means. But he also says to take his yoke upon us. So if we're going to really come to him, if we're going to find that rest, we have got to be willing to take his yoke upon us. But also, we have to be willing to learn of him. Now, here's a problem. Well, this is not the problem, I guess. Let me tell you, first of all, how many are glad that salvation is free? And we know that's true. It's by grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. But how many know to walk daily with Christ is difficult? 
It's a long, arduous journey. And we're not home yet. And churches are filled with people who don't want to hear any criticism. They want to be at ease in Zion. And by the way, when God spoke to one of the minor prophets, you know what he said? Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. What's that mean? Be careful. Be careful. And the problem is, and, and for the life of me, I don't understand this, and I guess I never will. How many know, For I, I'm going to guess, maybe I'm wrong here, and I'll be, I stand to be corrected, but the majority of churchgoers in America don't really care about doctrine. What is doctrine? Teaching, in particular what? Biblical teaching. It had been about 20, 25 years ago, we had a family that came visit for several weeks. Loved the church, loved the people. They even loved my preaching, believe it or not. And we had a, uh, probably a, a little bit bigger youth group we got now, but uh, not, not too bad a youth group. But they found a, a, a church with a bigger youth group, and that particular church taught that you were saved through baptism. And when I visited with him, he said, well, you know, we decided to go here. I said, do you realize they teach that you're saved through baptism? He said, I don't care. What? That's important, folks. But very few today in America are concerned about biblical doctrine. What does the Bible say? So they're content. And they don't. They're not concerned whether or not they're deceived. And a lot of people go to church where they can do what? Feel good, absorb in, whatever. Little concern about doctrine. And and the sad thing is, they're on shaky ground. They don't know it. Because it's important that we understand And those kind of people don't care. And for the most part, they refuse to examine their foundations. And they refuse to search their hearts as long as they are made to feel good about themselves. Don't bother me with doctrine. The Bible has, or Jesus actually had, some advice for that kind of folks. And look what he says in Matthew fifteen fourteen. What does that mean? They're in trouble. They're deceived and they don't know it. But thank God there are still quite a number to understand the value of our soul, the importance of eternity. And they see the fact that no matter what effort it might take to make sure they have a saving knowledge of the truth of God, to make sure they understand the terms of God's salvation to make sure they are building on an unshakable foundation. Folks, that needs to be our life. Making a calling an election sure. And that comes from rightly dividing the word of truth. So, with that being said, I want to take a closer look at our text verse tonight, and I think I've got it, uh, part of the verse on the overhead. Notice again in Matthew 11, in verse 28, it starts out, it says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. And then in verse 29, And ye shall find rest unto your souls. 
So the first thing Jesus, if you'll come to me, he says, I will give you rest. And then in verse 29, he says, you're going to find rest unto your souls. What kind of rest is he talking about here? Thank you. Spiritual rest. And please note, it's not two different kinds. They are both spiritual rest. Now, but also understand one kind of rest, but viewed from two distinct viewpoints. Now, notice, first of all, in the first part, we see the sovereignty of God at work here. If you come to Jesus, who's going to give us rest? He said, I will. I will give you rest. And then, in the last part of verse 29, he said, you will find rest for your souls. So we see divine sovereignty, and then we see human responsibility. Now remember, who does God want to give rest to? Everyone. But only those who come are going to find that rest. So we see human responsibility in that passage for the same spiritual rest. So in that opening statement, we find that certainly Christ affirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one who gives the rest. But then he follows that and he gives some specifics on the conditions that we have to meet if we are going to have that rest. It is conditional. Now remember, who gives the rest? Jesus does. And it is freely given, but only to those who comply to the revealed requirements of the one who gives it, and that is Christ. I will give you rest. So the call is come unto me. And again, who gives that call? Jesus does. Jesus does. But the question is, we talked about him being a prophet, priest, king, judge, all this kind of stuff. The call that he gives is from what particular character? And again, sometimes he speaks as king commanding his subjects. Sometimes he speaks as a creator as he addresses his creatures. Sometimes he speaks as a physician when he invites the sick. Uh, Sometimes he speaks as Lord, giving instruction to those who serve him. So again, it's important to understand the distinction of his offices and in what tone is he speaking here? <laughs> what about details? Are they important? Sure they are. Have you ever noticed almost every commercial that invites you to offer this great, this great whatever it is, they give it the commercial, and if, if it's a picture on the television, there's always some fine print at the end. Can you read it? No, but what's the fine print giving you? Details. And they're telling you why it's not going to work. Uh, if you're hearing it on the radio or some other form of media, and they're reading it, they'll read the detail, Right? Like I talk, you mean? (laughs) They can read them faster than I can even talk. That's fast. But the details are so, so important. And the only way, oh, by the way, did you notice you only got one page of notes? Don't get excited. Uh, Pam, I gave always given to her. She only one page. I said, "Don't get excited." But the only way to know from what approach Christ is making 
is to understand context. What is going on? First of all, Matthew chapter 11. It begins during a time when John the Baptist has been cast into prison. And while he's in prison, he sends some of his disciples to Christ with a concern. Look at verses 2 and 3, Matthew 11. What's the problem here? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it doesn't. And you're right, Dan. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but it doesn't. You know, he's the one, back in John 1, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who baptized Jesus and heard the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved Son, hear you him. And now he's in prison. Um, literally going to be beheaded shortly. And he begins to doubt a little bit. And we're thinking, wow, and this guy is our pastor. He's our leader. But what's interesting, that was John's concern. But getting in, beginning in verse 7, Jesus publicly vindicates John the Baptist and he magnifies his office. Somebody read verses 7 through 15, if you will, please. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, let's get the picture here, okay? John the Baptist is doubting. And uh, then I agree with you, a little puzzling there. Why would he doubt? What was wrong with John the Baptist? Say what? Yeah, for sure. You know his problem, but he was human. Yeah, he was human, just like we are. And what's interesting, Jesus doesn't criticize him. What's he do? He vindicates him. He said, You need to know something about John the Baptist. If you thought you wanted to see a pushover in the wilderness, you're kidding yourself. 
He's not like some weed blowing in the wind. That's not John. He doesn't wear fancy clothes. Doesn't live in king's houses. So what did you guys see? What were you expecting? <laughs> How many know they didn't get what they expected? Yeah. Did you go out to see a prophet? Now you saw one, but you saw somebody more than a prophet. And it makes an amazing statement. Of all the people born of women, guess what? No one is greater than John. No one. In verse 12, we talk about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, suffering violence. And then he says, the prophets and the law prophesied until what? Until John. And he said, you need to hear something. If you'll listen, this is Elijah that would prophesy would come before my coming to this world. So what? Why would Jesus say what he said? Now we're still in Matthew 11. And he praises John the Baptist. He praises John's ministry. And First of all, remember who's teaching here. Jesus is. And the people he's teaching have had the benefit of not only hearing Christ, they heard John the Baptist. Do you remember the time uh, when the Pharisees came and they asked Jesus the question? I don't remember the particular question, what it was, but they were trying to trip him up. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me ask you a question. And if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And Jesus says, John the Baptist, who was he? Was he a man or a man sent from God? And right away, these Pharisees turn into politicians. Did you ever notice that when you're interviewing these politicians? And a yes or no question never gets answered? Who was he? Well, the Pharisees had a problem. They said, oh, wait a minute. Mm. You know, we don't believe he's from God. But if we say he wasn't, the people think he was. They're going to stone us. So what do they say? We don't know. We just don't know. How many know that was a lie? Now, they may have been wrong about what they thought they knew, but they had an answer. So what's Christ doing here? And again, we're building up. There were people standing there in that crowd that day. They were privileged to live at a time under the ministry of Christ. They heard His teaching. And a lot of the same people had the benefit of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, first of all, who's better than Christ? No one. And then Jesus says, among men, there's no one greater than John. So would you agree they had two of the best teachers ever? And the sad thing is, they enjoyed both teaching... But they did not reap the benefits of it because they despised and they rejected both of them. You rejected me, Jesus said, and you rejected John. Matthew 11, pick it up at verse 16 through verse 19. 
What's going on here? Look look at the comparison Jesus made. How, How can I describe this generation? He said, you're like kids playing in the marketplace. One group playing the horn. Let's have a celebration. Let's have a good old time. Let's dance. Another group says, we have mourned and you have not lamented. Now remember, who's he talking about here? John the Baptist himself. And Jesus, now, can you, I don't know, uh, Cheryl, you said a moment ago, uh, not how we thought we might see John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but I think John was serious. No frills. I don't think when he got to preach every morning, he told a joke first. <laughs> All right? Uh, you know, John had trouble winning friends. Why? They don't want to hear the truth. Did he call them? What? Oh, man, that's a way to win friends, right? (laughs) Wow. So I'm like you, Cheryl. He shot from the hip. And I I want to say, he didn't care who he wounded. He preached the word of God. Now, we know that Jesus did. And, again, and I don't want to take this too far, but... What did they accuse Jesus of being? Yeah, a glutton and a drunkard. So one was mournful, one was joyful. Which one did they like? Neither one. They were like those children playing in the marketplace. They simply couldn't decide. Now don't miss this. Now again, we're trying to find the context of coming to me and you'll find rest. So the people of that day, and by the way, people don't change. Styles may change. I remember years ago when I was a teenager, man, that's been about four years ago now. My grandfather told me, he said, don't worry, son. If you wear something long enough, it'll come back into style again. And he was right about that. So people don't really change. And the people of that day were so depraved, they accused John of being demon-possessed. There's something wrong with John. And they also accused Jesus Christ, like Jason said, of being a glutton and a wine-pibber. <laughs> now, let's, let's kind of pause here for a second. Why do you think that was a reaction? Say it again. Well, that's true. But he, he, they accused one of being demon. But the bottom line was they didn't want to believe the message. And if you can't believe the accused, right? Bring accusation. Let's pick them at verse 20 and look at the denunciation. 20 through 24.
Wow. I want to submit to you tonight. This is one of the most serious passages in all the New Testament. Some of the most fearful words that ever came out of the mouth of our Savior. Notice, and thank you, Philip, for reading it, by the way, there in verse 20. He began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. What does that mean? Yeah. Now, we know he performed miracles in a lot of places, but most of them were done in these cities. Absolutely. One of, they must have been free will Baptist, okay? Yeah, they came out to see the miracles and get fed, all right? He lists several cities, Chorazin, Maseda. Those were cities in that area. <laughs> Tyre was a wicked city, mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, when Ezekiel and Isaiah spoke about Satan, they referred to this king and his cities. And Jesus said, if I'd have done the works there, entire inside these, these sister cities, they would have repented. And he said, what you, need, what you need to know, I did most of my works here in this area. And on the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for them than it is for you. And God destroyed those cities. Oh, then he comes to Capernaum. Does anybody know the significance of Capernaum at this particular time? It's where Jesus chose to live. He lived in the city of Capernaum. And when he did his Galilee ministry, that's where he left from. That's where he lived. And he says, you have been lifted up to heaven. You've had that privilege. You have had the Son of God living in your midst. And even though you've been exalted into heaven, guess what? You had that privilege, but you missed it. And now you'll be brought down to hell. And then he makes a, wow, what a statement. If these works have been done in Sodom, you ever hear of Sodom before? If they saw what you saw, they would have still been here. They repented. But I want to tell you something Jesus said. You're going to face a worse kind of judgment than they faced. And he brings these charges against these cities where he had done most of his mighty works, and he brought those charges because they refused to repent. They refused to repent. May I ask a question tonight? Does Jesus gloss over sin? No. He doesn't now. And he didn't then. So he doesn't gloss over the perversity of their sin. He directly charges them with that sin. Now remember, we talked about Jesus. He says, I will give you rest. That's divine sovereignty. But these verses remind us that God never ignores human responsibility. Now remember, who does the call go out to? Everyone. But we all have a responsibility. (laughs) And he never excuses man's 
spiritual impotency. He held them strictly accountable. By the way, were his words clear? Yes. And he blamed them for their lack of repentance. If these other cities would have had the advantage you had, they would have repented. But you did not. I want to say today, willful impenitency is a great damning sin of the multitudes who enjoy the privilege of hearing the gospel preached. They refuse to repent and come to Jesus. Now I understand something, folks. When judgment comes, how long will it last? For eternity. And those who refuse to repent will be upbraided for eternity. Now remember, John the Baptist preached repentance. And that's also part of the piping of verse 17. John called. It's also part of the mourning. You were warned. And you refused to come. You refused to repent. And by the way, why did John preach? Did he want people to go to hell? No. Why did Jesus preach? Did he want people to go to hell? No. The whole point of piping and mourning was to hopefully have people to change their minds and to change their ways, turn from their sins, and turn to God. But Jesus said, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Now remember, as we read our text a moment ago, he didn't say you didn't believe. A lot of them did believe. They had some kind of faith. Um, some probably believed that Christ was indeed a teacher come from God. But because they didn't repent, their faith did not prevail. Now, by the way, see, I'm trying to get our Sunday school lined up here. Uh, Sunday, we're going to find out from Hebrews 11, faith works. All right? Genuine faith works. And so their faith didn't prevail to bring about the transforming of their hearts and the result of the transforming of their lives. They refused to go far enough in their faith to bring about repentance. And don't forget, the only reason, whether it was John in his day or Christ in that time and even now, the only reason Jesus reproved them of their sins so that he might get them to repent. That's what he wants. That's the desire of his heart. But because they refused to repent, he began to upbraid them because they refused to to be healed. Jesus, if you come to me, I'll do what? I'll give you rest. And I think he upbraided them that they might see the foolishness of how they're living and realize that, wow, what a sad case, a desperate one And Matthew Henry says it led to an incurable wound. You would not come. 
And so the particular sin here that Christ upbraids them over or criticized them for was one of lack of repentance. Don't have the verse in our notes tonight, but you remember the time shortly before the crucifixion, Christ sat over them on the Mount of Olives. And he looked over the city of Jerusalem. And what did he do? He began to weep. Why was he brokenhearted? They wouldn't listen. And can you hear the call and the cry of his heart? And he personifies Jerusalem as her children, the people who live there, Israel. If you would have only let me, oh, I tried. I would have taken you like a mother hen does her chicks. My grandparents were raised chickens in my early years, and I would spend a lot of summer with them. And uh, I didn't know it at that time, but these were free-range chickens. I mean, they were in my grandma's yard, the neighbor's yard. They were everywhere. But I remember several times in the summertime, there'd be a storm coming in the afternoon, a big rain. And I don't remember that my grandparents had a particular chicken house or a hen house. I know they had a place where they laid eggs sometimes. But that rain would come, and if there were little chicken, little chicks, little yellow chicks there, you know what that mother hen would do? She'd gather, I watched her, she'd gather them chickens, them little chickens. Under her wings. And she protected him from the storm. And she just said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have done that for your children. And you wouldn't let me. How many know the lack of repentance breaks the heart of God? Well, we're going to stop there for tonight. We're still leading up, look at the context of what's going on here. Uh, knowing that coming to rest is coming to him in rest is an invitation, but there are some requirements to finding that rest.